Good evening. So healthcare is in the news everywhere these days. It's on the radio, it's on TV, it's online, it's in newspapers. And I don't know if you saw this poll just the other day that said seven in 10 Canadians right now say it's harder to get health care than it was before the pandemic. And that's according to a Nanos research poll. And this morning, Dr. Brian Day tweeted a link to an opinion piece from a family doc in Quinnell that says, I was at the tail end of my second round of hand washing when I heard Nora in the reception. Please tell Judy I'm terribly sorry. Her voice was an octave higher than usual. I grabbed a paper towel and poked my head around the corner to greet her. Nora was one of my newer patients. She handed a box of pastries to my assistant, Lindsay, and looked at me and said, I missed my appointment. I'm so sorry. And I'm afraid you're going to fire me as a patient. Her overreaction to this minor lapse, this doctor from Quinnell said, reflects the general climate of anxiety about family medicine in a country where millions struggle to find primary care and many more fear they'll lose the one they have. As Ontario Premier Doug Ford recently stated, the status quo isn't working. And even BC Premier John Horgan said, maybe we need to reimagine healthcare. So what's happening? Why is it happening? And are there any potential solutions? That's what we're here to address tonight. So welcome to Conversations Live, a partner program with the Vancouver Sun. We're coming to you live from the Terminal City Club, which is on the traditional lands of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations. Tonight, we're talking about healthcare in BC. Is it really as bad as we think it is? We have an outstanding panel and video contributions from a couple of other uh, contributors. We'll be taking questions here in the room and from our audience online via Slido, which you'll be able to see on the screen and it'll give you instructions how to participate. Now, I wanna take a moment just to say thank you to and acknowledge our sponsors because without them, we wouldn't be able to put on this program. The Port of Vancouver, Stem Cell Technologies, BD Developments, Polygon, Landlord BC, Investment News Network, our media sponsor CKNW, along with Apple G Public Relations and Oh Boy Productions. Now to our panel. Well, as you can see, it's extraordinary. Dr. Brian Day of the Canby Clinic, Terry Lake, CEO of BC Care Providers and a former Minister of Health, Aman Gruel, the President of the BC Nurses Union, Troy Clifford, the president of the Ambulance and Paramedics Union, and, Do and Dr. Ali Ab Lavand, an emergency room doctor at Royal Columbian and a clinical assistant professor at UBC. And online, we have veteran Vancouver Sun columnist Vaughn Palmer. Vaughn, <laughs> yes, a great panel, thank you. Vaughn, I'd like to start with you. Over the past few months, you have zeroed in on the myriad problems and challenges in the delivery of healthcare. Can you give us your state of the union or your perspective on where we're at on delivering healthcare in BC? 
I have been doing this job for almost 40 years uh, for the Vancouver Sun and Victoria. Uh, first thing is, I, I go back to it again and again. We knew this was coming, and we found out ways to make it worse. When I started, uh, in 1984, covering uh, BC government uh, for the Vancouver Sun, uh, health was still already the biggest story on budget day. And you'd hear these briefings from health officials and finance officials that it was growing and growing. And it had already passed a third of the provincial budget and one of these days it was gonna be half the provincial budget. And there was an aging population, even then. Some of us felt awfully young in those days. I certainly didn't feel like an aging population the way I do now. But the demographics were all there, and we were getting older, and that meant we were going to be using more health care because that's what older people did. And I think the one thing that never really added up was, and, and it's only really become obvious in the last little while, is that... The practitioners were aging with the patients. And just when the patients needed some of them, they were going to be retiring. So we knew it was coming. Uh, you could say that the pandemic accelerated it a bit and brought it home a little more quickly. But you can't go back to any point in all the time I've been writing about budgets and politics and healthcare that we weren't being warned about uh, what one premier called the silver tsunami, the aging population that was going to bump way up the demand for healthcare and the need for it. Uh, the other half of what I said that I always think back on is we figured out ways to make this worse. And I think when you talk to people of a certain generation, not mine, and tell them the brilliant idea that they had for management of the healthcare system 30 years ago and 40 years ago, uh, they would just glare at you like with disbelief, but it was real. And the brilliant idea they had was that um, doctors generate Medicare billings by generating patients. And so if you had fewer doctors, you would have fewer patients and fewer Medicare billings. We actually did this. We uh, didn't fund uh, training uh, through medical schools. Uh, we capped them. Uh, we capped nurses too and other uh, professionals and practitioners. We rationed Medicare billing numbers. So if you wanted to practice medicine, uh, you just graduated from medical school and you wanted to practice medicine in British Columbia, you had to buy out an existing doctor and get his or her Medicare billing number. Um, well, uh, not surprisingly, uh, even though we supplemented our uh, staffing and our uh, platoon of doctors as best we could by stealing them from other places, uh, it is hardly surprising that we ended up with a shortage of doctors. I had a family doctor tell me the other day his personal experience with this uh, in a way that brought home to me the crisis we have with family doctors. And so he said he graduated from medical school in British Columbia in 1986, and he wanted to practice medicine, so he bought a Medicare billing number. Well, he said he bought out of practice, but what he really bought was a number. And he paid $180,000, which was real money in those days. I suppose it would be a half a million dollars today 
But he said, here's the thing. Now, this, by the way, is a family doctor who loves being a family doctor, uh, is not talking about retiring or anything, but he said there is a certain irony in all this. His own son graduated from medical school this year, and he'd always had in the back of his mind that, you know, the son would take over the family business. Not a chance. The son, the son is going into some other branch of medicine, a uh, specialist, or he's going to go work in a hospital or something like that. Uh, Dad, there's no future in family doctoring, and he's not interested. And the doctor tells me that if he wanted to sell his practice, and he doesn't, uh, he wouldn't find any takers. Uh, the $180,000 he poured into it uh, way back in 1986 is, is gone. He, he couldn't sell the practice for that today. So as I say, uh, we knew the problem was coming. I don't think any of us would claim that our governments were prepared for it when it got here. And we did some things like rationing services and training and uh, all the other things we could have done to provide us with more practitioners when we needed them, uh, we went the opposite direction. So here we are. Uh, we can complain about it as much as we like. The solutions are not, uh, don't lend themselves to the kind of snap your fingers things that politicians do with some other crises. Uh, this one is going to be tough to solve. Uh, that's my perspective as a political columnist. I'm looking forward to what everybody on that very excellent panel has to say about it tonight. Thank you. Thanks, Vaughn. So, Aman, I'd like to ask you, are we at the breaking point? You represent the nurses in BC. Are we at the breaking point from your perspective? I don't think my mic, is my mic working? Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. great. Um, yes, we are at that breaking point. Uh, speaking to our nurses, I just came back from the Northeast talking to nurses that were from Fort St. John all the way down to Prince George and um, also throughout the summer we've been engaging with our members and we're just hearing how bad it is and we're hearing that uh, they're working at about 50% of their staffing and uh, there are travel agency nurses that are filling in for those vacancies as well but still not enough. There are I believe 4,265 nursing vacancies as of this spring and we need 26,000 more nurses by 2031. That's only less than a decade away and we're not producing enough nurses to meet the need. Do we have a path forward to fill that gap? If we look at uh, bringing back nurses who have retired, bring them back to mentor our new grads that are coming into the system, these new grads have uh, gone through schooling through COVID and didn't get that full experience that other nurses receive because, it was, because of the restrictions. And uh, so having those nurses come back that have retired, either they retired early because they were just so tired, um, because they've been working with such staffing shortages where you normally would have had four patients. Now you've got eight, 12 on night shift, you could have 20 patients. We're hearing in long-term care, 100 patients per nurse 
These are residents in long-term care. They've got care aides working with them, but the workload is so high, they're not getting their breaks. To listen to a nurse say, I didn't get a break, is not something unusual for nurses to uh, understand that you go a break, you go an entire uh, shift without having something to eat or having had a chance to go to the washroom. That is not unreasonable to hear these days because it's their new reality. Terry, you of course see the impact of this from BC Care Providers' perspective. This is one of many issues that you're facing. What's uh, the current state of affairs when it comes to long-term care provision? Well, <clears throat> certainly the HHR crisis is very, very real. Uh, Providers cannot find nurses, cannot find enough care aides. Uh, you know, we have a, a provision for 24-7 nurse on site that can't be met by health authorities, let alone contracted providers. Uh, there's just not enough people out there. So the government, all governments are working hard on this. 600 uh, new nursing spaces open, but that takes time, obviously. But we need to look to the international educated nurses and find pathways uh, to bring them in. I know. Uh, the nurses, uh, <clears throat> uh, the College of Nurses and Midwives in BC is working hard to do just that. We're working with the Immigration Employment Council to create a program to make sure that new Canadians uh, that have been trained in, in nursing know that system and can be set up for success. But we need all governments to be focused on this. Even though it's a provincially regulated profession, the federal government needs to show some leadership and push all provinces in Canada to open their arms to making it easier to get qualified, internationally educated nurses and doctors into our system. That's certainly not the whole answer, but it's a big part of the answer. Troy, you face a different challenge, but it's equally daunting. Uh, give us a, uh, an overview right now where it's at, because <laughs> what you deal with so of course is emergent care and then you are taking them to the ER where we'll get Allie to, re to respond and carry on perspective from what you and your members are dealing with on a daily basis. Yeah, thank you. I, I think, you know, uh, the challenges we have as a provincial ambulance service are pretty well documented right now and very, very um, reflective in there. I think that you Anybody is aware of what's going on in the ambulance service? Maybe to not what extent caused it and how long it's been going on. People want to say that uh, I think Vaughn said it best that, that you know COVID has amplified it, the opiate crisis has amplified it. But the, the the reasons we're in this situation is not because of COVID and not because of um, the opiate crisis or insert uh, natural disasters or whatever. But it's interesting that when you talk about the panel, um, paramedics and dispatchers cross over into all these, our, our colleagues' jurisdictions, seniors, emergency departments, our nurses, they're all our partners, our first responder partners. So for us, we cross over two very interesting things that we're proud of. Our public safety identity, meaning we're part of that public safety, safety first responder, but we also cross into the healthcare from our clinical and our expertise. And, and we come a long ways from the, uh, you know, I started a couple days after Vaughn in the ambulance service as a young bright-eyed person, and it's changed a lot from when I started in 1989. And 
I still work as a paramedic and I see on the front lines what exactly went on. I worked during COVID, like my colleagues here, and, and, and it's real. What we experienced in the last couple years, what it did was amplified how we got into a situation in the ambulance service in this province. And, and in, in, in what I'm talking about with our colleagues and our other healthcare professionals and first responders. And what that did was exposed how far behind we got over many, many years. This didn't happen two years ago. It started 20, 30 years ago where we did not invest in the ambulance service. I'll focus on my sort of subject matter expertise. And we went many years with increased call volumes, 6% a year on average across the province. And the resources or training never was in the same trajectory. Then we got to a few years ago where we were in a crisis with the high acuity of calls, meaning the most serious of calls are going up. So pre-COVID, we had a, a set number of calls that was pretty consistent with the emergency room to visits to ambulance response times. And it was pretty consistent. Post-COVID, that went up by about 25%. And that's consistent with the visits, I'm told, from the Ministry of Health on emergency room visits. And that's been steady since then. So those volumes have went up. And in current state right now, because of a number of reasons, which I can talk about, we're about 25% of our resources are not staffed on any given day. That means an ambulance parked with no paramedics to work it. That's on recall of holidays, everything. So you're already seeing increases of 20, 30% calls and, an, and a significant increase of acuity of, of those calls. And then you're already running at 25%. It's a, it's, Something's going to give. You've got more calls than you have ambulances. That's why you're hearing about these delays. So I'm happy to say there is a hope in the horizon that with more additional resources, we're seeing, but it takes time to train paramedics, just like nurses and doctors. Um, and we have a significant recruitment challenge and retention in the fact that we are significantly lower in wages and benefits than our partners in health and first respond, police, fire, and that. And that's been a direct result of our funding model under provincial versus municipal, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But at this point, so when you become in a human resources supply and demand situation and you're not competitive, people choose to go where they can. And that's one of our biggest deterrents right now to recruit and retain. One example is you can go work in private industry as a medic and make considerably more money to work at the private medic, so why would you stay? And nurses are the same, and, and doctors are choosing to do other. So those are our challenges, the competitive nature of it, and if you can't compete, you're gonna end up with a human resource. So there are solutions for that, but it's gonna involve raising that trajectory. The other biggest thing we have is the ability to really train, and the scope of our practice has increased immensely and the responsibility. So when you're seeing these, so recently we've seen these increases in high acuity. So we mean the most serious of calls. That means the heart attack, the shortness of the breath, the strokes, those sorts of things that require immediate ambulance. Those numbers are getting higher. And that's a result of what I say is more sicker people in the community. They're staying home longer, COVID seen that. So more sicker people are in the communities and they're relying on the ambulance service and the emergency departments as GPs. So we talk about a million people or whatever the number is that don't have GP, but if they can't get there, then uh, so, so the community health seniors are longer in the communities, they're requiring more care. Um, so these are all putting pressures on a certain number of years ago, we shut down many facilities uh, in smaller towns and smaller hospitals 
that put more pressure on the system to transport farther. And the smaller communities, you take Kamloops, for instance, everybody's being transported in from Barrier, Chase, Ashcroft, Merritt to a tertiary hospital. So that pressure is being put on those, those, those primary hospitals to be the general physicians for that. So I'll leave it at that for now. So the, these patients are arriving uh, with, you know, lights on and sirens blaring. They wind up at the emergency room. Allie, you're at Royal Columbian, which is at the epicenter of the Fraser Valley in many ways. What's the situation like there in Emerge? I work at both Royal Columbian and Eagle Ridge Hospital. We cover Tri-Cities and New West. Our CH, as you said, is also a referral center, tertiary center, and uh, we also receive a lot of uh, referrals from all the way, all the way from Boston Bar, actually. Uh, understandably, because we get so many referrals from other centers and other parts of the valley, uh, we are under added burden of the patient and demand. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, at the same time, we still have to serve what we, uh, as a local department, have to do, which is taking care of the local population. If I may, I have to say something about emergency departments. Uh, sometimes it's good to put everything in a perspective. So. Emergency medicine as a specialty is probably one of the youngest specialties. Uh, being nice to my specialty, probably half a century old. When emergency medicine went from being an emergency room with physicians from community taking turns to sit there and see patients during the day and go home at night, uh, we, we figured there is a larger role for emergency medicine and we have to turn into a specialty and a department. Uh, took a while, uh, probably about 50, 40 years ago, it turned into a department with, with a role, which is the set role is to take care of emergencies. Well, at the same time, we knew when we started this specialty that it will be a department to be part of the safety net of the healthcare system. There will be people who will fall through the cracks, won't have enough access or timely access to primary care or other type of care that they require, and they need a place to go. So let's have this department open 24 seven so we can provide this care. And we have always been very happy to be that backup for the system. Now, it looks like we've moved from one end of the sort of spectrum where we had to convince the governments, colleagues, the public that it is necessary to have this department to the other end that emergency department is not the answer to everything. Unfortunately, that's how we feel in emergency department that uh, for the longest time, the emergency departments have played a role as a slack of the whole system and now we feel that there is a lot of pressure on emergency medicine as a specialty and emergency department as one of the key departments in the hospital. And we are very willing to play our role. However, we can't be the answer to everything. And that's, that's probably one of the main things I wanted to get across here. We, I was just telling you that it is very difficult, probably one of the most challenging things to build an integrated healthcare system. 
needs a lot of expertise, investment, a lot of experience to build integrated healthcare systems that function well together. But in a not very well-functioning healthcare system that we're trying to integrate, as soon as one corner of the system fails, you see that it was actually integrated. When primary care fails, we feel it in emergency medicine. When surgical sort of long, uh, waiting times are long or access to radiology fails, we feel it sometimes in another part of the healthcare, potentially even in, in uh, uh, where our paramedic colleagues work or in the long-term care. So the system is integrated. It may not function well as an integrated system, but that's where we can actually probably focus on. So the system's under pressure. Brian, you've known this for a long time. You've been talking to us about this for decades now, and you've tried to come up with solutions, and yet you keep running into monumental roadblocks, including law cases and, and so on. Give us your understanding about how we got to here and how frustrating it must be for you when you're trying to come forward with solutions to be shut down. Well, let me start by saying that, you know, contrary to what a lot of people think, I don't believe we need to privatize the system. Um, that doesn't mean I don't think there shouldn't be some private sector involvement, but, but I think we have to go back to where Vaughan started, and that is this problem was created in the, in the 80s and 90s by government policies. When I came to Vancouver in, uh, in the early 70s, we were ranked fourth in the world in the number of doctors per population. Today we're ranked 69th in the world. This is a government, this is thanks to government policies of governments across the country, of all political parties. They, they bought into um, one of the Royal Commissions, the Seton Commission's uh, recommendations that if you, if you cut back on doctors and you cut back on nurses, and you close hospital beds, um, you'll make things, you'll, keep, you'll be able to be fiscally uh, okay. And, um, and uh, now we're, we were in the top 10, when I came we were in the top 10 in the world in hospital beds and, and um, uh, now we're 31st. Um, we've, we're we're, um, we're the, of, of 10 countries that were looked at by, with universal healthcare that were looked at by the Commonwealth Fund. We're ranked last in equity. So one of the things that Stats Canada shows is our system is not, do, is not looking after the lower socioeconomic groups. They suffer the worst access and the worst health outcomes in Canada. So it's not doing what it, what it was planned to do. And I think that yes, um, government has to step up to the plate and do a better job. Um, but it's not just more money. We're now at 12.67% of GDP. We are spending more on healthcare than any other developed countries that has universal healthcare. So countries like Germany and Switzerland and England, you don't find this type of situation going on there. It's not also just an absolute uh, numbers of, of doctors. Yes, we need to engage and, and help um, um, expand nurses, doctors, and other healthcare workers from coming into the system. But, but I think you've heard from, from Troy, 
the, the reality is we're not paying paramedics um, an adequate salary and that needs to be fixed. Um, what the trouble is, and this is one of the, the rule, one of the statements made by the, uh, the BC Appeal Court in our trial was that, that as a policy decision, uh, governments have decided to cap spending on healthcare as a policy decision. Well, you can't expect um, a family doctor um, to, to, um, to do a house call for, which, which is, this is the real, these are real ratios, for a third of the fee that the technician who comes to fix your dishwasher is paid. You can't expect a family physician to do um, as a, a recently introduced fee for, for COVID vaccination in under five-year-olds to, um, to do that procedure for $5.45, which is the fee the government has set. Um, it's just not gonna, it's not possible to function in that way, uh, the way, the way the health system is. But we need to, and, and then, yes, there's a shortage of, of doctors and nurses and others, but part of the shortage is that these different groups are leaving the workforce. So, and it's not just COVID, 2013 CBC did a survey and found that um, 25% of nurses were very dissatisfied with their hospital in Canada and 40% were burnt out. Now, we're, we're, we're hearing about burnout now. This was going on in 2000, this was in a survey in 2013. We have, um, our system is based on rationing due to fiscal constraints. Um, there are 200 orthopedic surgeons. The longest wait lists in Canada are in specialties like neurosurgery, orthopedics, and, um, and there are 200 young orthopedic surgeons who can't get a job, can't get a operating room time, because operating room time is rationed to save money. And at the same time, you know, and this is, this is something that's been said by constitutional experts across the country, a government cannot promise access to healthcare, then not provide it, and simultaneously make it unlawful for you to access healthcare on your own. And, and, and now a study came out last year showing 11,500 Canadians, more than 11,500 Canadians are dying on wait lists. People with cancers are developing, are sp their cancers are spreading while they're on wait lists. People with gall waiting for gallbladder surgery, they're perforating while they're on, on, on wait lists and coming into the emergency department unnecessarily. And, 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 and you know, this is, a, so it is a crisis, we all know that, and uh, it has to be solved. And, um, um, the solutions, as I, I use the hockey analogy or the soccer analogy, analogy if you were ranked bottom of 10 countries, or 10 teams, if you're in a league and you're the 10th ranked team, which we are in healthcare in developed countries, wouldn't you look at what the top two or three are doing and try and learn from, from them, especially when you're spending more on healthcare than any of the others are? And uh, so we, we, need to, we need to look at alternatives and, and learn from the rest of the world. Well, looking at the, those alternatives, we know that uh Health Minister Adrian Dix at UBCM was there under the um, banner of uh, coming forward with a new plan, but when he got up to speak to the audience, there was no new plan. Vaughn, were you surprised by that? 
Well, <laughs> uh, there's been an awful lot of talking uh, and an awful lot of passing on substantial reforms because we're dealing with the pandemic. Uh, there has been an awful lot of mixed up priorities in some of the things the government's done. So um, the, the government has spent a lot of money in some areas in healthcare, but I thought, uh, you know, we had the shocker last week, the report of the specialists uh, echoing what uh, Dr. Day just said. And what others have said, which is the waiting lists are pretty bad, even for things where we're supposedly very good, like cancer treatment. There was, a, you know, the premier himself has provided uh, a lot of leadership on facing cancer, and a lot of people admire him for it, and I, he deserves that admiration. And it's clear that uh, he decided that even though uh, he loved the job of being premier. He couldn't go on because his health wasn't permitting. So he, we know his predicament. But in the middle of all this, uh, a couple of things. Very early on, he said, you know, get yourself tested. See your doctor. And in all politeness, I heard from people who said, how am I supposed to see my doctor? I don't have one. Doctors are the entryway point into the healthcare system. And there's an enormous number of people in British Columbia who don't have a doctor, a lot of them in the provincial capital region. So that was the first sort of thing that ran up against John Horgan talking about it. And then he wrote a piece a while ago saying we have terrific cancer care. Well, he did, and an awful lot of people do, and not to take anything away from him or anybody in the system. But that statement last week, the, the group of specialists that came out, uh, I was shocked by that. I didn't know it was that bad. I think they did a, a good job of dramatizing it. But, um, you know, <laughs> there's enough alarm bells ringing out there, and not just the ones on the ambulances. Uh, and I think the pandemic has created a public willingness to deal with the problems in healthcare and get going. But what I don't see coming forward is the kind of reforms that say, we're going to have to start doing this differently. Yes, we have to train. And yes, we have to uh, increase resources. And yes, we have to increase budgets. But uh, we're not seeing the kind of dramatic willingness to reform the system. So no, I am not surprised that when Adrian Dix went to the UBCM, he did not have a dramatic a uh, plan to reform the system. Uh, the message from him and this government is much more along the lines of business as usual. Well, business is excluded from being a part of the equation to a large extent. And I think one of the things that so many people find frustrating is that when there are groups within healthcare that are trying to come up with substantive changes that can improve the system, they wind up being thwarted in their efforts. Amy, I'm going to ask you to roll that clip from the orthopedic surgeons about the swing rooms that were created at St. Paul's Hospital to increase the volume of surgeries only to run into complications through administration. Amy? 
the end of the day, typically doing more cases costs the hospital more money and it always seems they're running out of money and it always seems that these patients are the ones who are told they can wait. I have this conversation almost daily with patients in my practice and they just don't understand that how it is having paid their taxes in Canada, uh, when it's their turn for care, they're told that they can wait 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, uh, despite being in significant pain, uh, significant anxiety associated with that pain, and having surgeries that we know are going to make a big difference to their quality of life. And Despite going to the effort of creating these swing rooms within St. Paul's, uh, a surgeon's collective initiative, right, Brian? This was a, a tremendous effort to try and uh, increase the number of patients that would be treated on a daily basis. Yes, uh, the, the explanation is, um, is that Canada is the only developed country which completely block funds hospitals. So that every patient, so a hospital like Vancouver General Hospital, for instance, might get $2 billion a year. Every patient that goes there is using up the hospital's revenue. And in every other developed country, the even when they're publicly insured, a patient that goes to, say, a hospital for a hip replacement in Britain, is the hospital receives revenue from the public system in Canada the hospital's revenue is used up. So the incentive for a chief financial officer of any hospital in Canada, and it's unique amongst OECD countries, is to stop that the, the patients are a source of revenue loss. And that's, that's a bizarre funding system. And it's, uh, we're, we're unique. We're unique also, and as you know, I'm, I'm a supporter of choice. I do believe we should be allowed when the government promises health care, fails to deliver it, and, and we're, we're confident of this, it, it is not only unethical, uh, it's also unlawful, and we eventually, I, I'm sure, will prove this, to say to that patient, you must stay on a wait list, even if it means you're going to die. Then we're, again, unique in, in that way. So the, the, but it's the global block funding that is uh, responsible for the fact that swing rooms are, are not good because it uses up the hospital's money too quickly. And when a patient goes to the emergency department in, 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 in most countries, in the OECD, um, they're a source of revenue to the hospital from the public system, but in Canada, they are using up and consuming the hospital's budget. That has to change. And, and it was... It was um, starting to be implemented in, in, I think, during the time when, um, um, when the BC Liberals were in government, they were looking at that, and, and it, it was, but it, it, got, uh, it got shelved afterwards. Terry? <laughs> well, uh, I just want to get back to the point about the money, because uh, Brian has said that uh, even though we have among the lowest outcomes, we have the highest cost per person in the system. So if it was just about paying more money, uh, we should be at the top. So it's about how we use the money. So the, the system Brian's talking about was a pay for performance uh, kind of scheme that was tried. Uh, it, it didn't get traction everywhere. I don't argue with Brian's point about block funding and seeing patients as a cost 
rather than relieving a pressure on the system and, and, and overall uh, the system will benefit. But we don't look at it as a system. If you look at long-term care, it's part of a system, but it, it certainly is not covered under the Canada Health Act. And you can buy all the care you want in long-term care if you go private. Uh, and the rest of the cost, if you're in the publicly supported system, is based on your income. But even there, we're not willing to invest enough in creating spaces so that people that are inappropriately waiting in hospital can go to long-term care or have more home care to allow them to return in a safe way to their own home or to a congregate living setting with, with supports. So uh, Ali's point about the integration is absolutely true, but it's not well integrated. The, it, every part of the system depends on the other, but we haven't been, uh, um, you know, uh, made a conscious decision about how that integration is supposed to uh, appear to get the optimized system. We, we look at things on a four-year election cycle. We look at things as the, the next negotiation coming up with the doctors of BC or the BCNU or the HEU. We don't look at what we need to do to create a properly integrated system and how we can start to optimize technology because we are still using the F word, the fax machine, to, to <laughs> uh, deliver healthcare in this province. It's absolutely ridiculous. But there are so many, it, it is, the inertia in the system is, is so great. But we were saying at our table, now the boomers are coming to the point where they absolutely need this care. The, the me generation will demand it one way or the other. And so politicians will have to decide that the way we deliver health care and the integration or lack of integration should not be the political third rail that it's been in this country for the last 40 and 50 years. Ali? <laughs> I couldn't, say it, I couldn't say that better. We have, we have to make an integration a, a policy and that should not swing with politics. Like it has to stay, uh, stay the course, doesn't matter who's in power. And I think that's the role of technocrats. I think we are all technocrats. We're not politicians, I'm not one. So I'm a recovering one. <laughs> so, so I think that's, that's important to, to stay the course that way and, and uh, pay enough attention to, to the system in different aspects. I, I do appreciate the fact that now we have all come to understanding that primary care is in dire need of uh, attention and resource. I, I really am happy about that. Uh, I wish we could, we could, we had the means or maybe creativity to do that somewhat simultaneously in different as aspects of healthcare. So, uh, it's great to be able to have more primary care providers uh, and it could be nurses, nurse practitioners or family doctors serve the system because they, they can actually manage the load and actually distribute the load of the system. And also they can actually save. We know if in, in systems that are built on uh, sort of referral system and, and universal healthcare systems, function best when they have a strong primary care system. And unfortunately, we are lacking a little bit there. So I'm very happy to see that's happening. But I think at the same time, we can't 
address one thing and move to the second. We should probably take care of the acute medicine. We should uh, take care of every aspect of this, hopefully, inter integrated system. Am I? Um, just speaking to what Ali just said here about uh, focusing on one system, but that brings me to that if we're fixing acute care, um, part of the problem with acute care is that we have, we don't have enough long-term care beds. So we have the ALC patients who are languishing in beds in acute care that need to be going out to the long-term care facilities. So we need to invest in long-term care facilities in order to be able to put the patients through. And people are living longer. And uh, so we need to invest in that as well. And um, then in terms of investing in the healthcare, just a lot needs to be coordinated um, in terms of prior to when all these changes uh, took place. Vaughn, I'm just a few years behind you. I uh, started in 1988, so I've been nursing for 36 years. And, um, you know, at that time, we knew that this shortage was coming. And what did they do? They made it harder for you to become a nurse. You now had to become a degree nurse not just a diploma nurse. We used to have uh, nursing schools that were in hospitals. We had colleges that had nursing schools. You had two and three year programs. Now we have four year programs. And the nurses that were in those diploma programs had more clinical skills because the ones that went into university to get the degree, they were the ones that were looking to not be at the bedside. So if we can come up with creative ideas on how to get more nurses out there, do the two-year diploma program, and then if anybody wants to upgrade after that, let them do that, but let's get the nurses into the system and um, I'm just gonna leave it at that. Well, no, I want a follow-up okay. question here. When you put forward suggestions like that, how are they received? They're considered, well, what a great idea, and, uh, but that's it. We still don't have a health human resources plan. We keep on asking for that, and we continue to wait for that. We keep on getting told it's being worked on, but we haven't seen anything. And the con situation continues to deteriorate. Absolutely. You know, just listening to the nurses and the struggles that they're facing, uh, we're talking about primary care here as well, Ali. And um, so there are changes that are taking place up north in primary care where the nurses usually have a specialty and um, you're drawn to, let's say, mental health or you're into childhood vaccinations, you've got lactation nurses, et cetera. You've got all different types of specialties. So up in the north, uh, what they're doing is making those nurses all generalists. They have to go between every type of patient, and so you're losing that expertise and that skill set that these nurses have acquired to now have to stretch themselves amongst a whole different variety of patients. You were doing diabetes care, now your next patient, you're doing foot care and the next one you're giving a baby an immunization. All too familiar to you, Troy? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, the whole panel is really uh, highlighting, I mean, the challenges we have. But I, I think one of the things that I've just been sitting here reflecting on is that the acknowledgement that the paramedics are part of this system that we're talking about. And that's been a long time coming for us. As, uh, you know, not being acknowledged in the healthcare system, primary care model, um, emergency access point, the first point. Uh, I think that's probably one of the things I've seen the biggest change in the last couple years is the acknowledgement. And it, you know, it goes back to um, some of the stuff that Terry started as the Minister of Health with the community paramedic program. So I think that that's first of all, the first thing I think is that having a discussion that paramedics can be part of that primary health care model. Uh, we have been. Um, and really as part of the solutions. Uh, we are part of that team. We are, and the scope of practice has changed so much that uh, we're bringing, you know, no longer are we, I remember a doctor in Victoria when I was working on CAR a long time ago when we first got diabetic protocols where we, we before we got the ability to give D10, which is sugar and water basically, um, to revive a diabetic, we used to race those people in and the, the emergency departments would have to revive them. Now we're bringing them in, if at all, um, and they're, they're, they've been uh, in a better state. So that's just a real simple lay example of the change of medicine over the years that we can do. Overdose, the same thing. We used to ventilate and race them in. Uh, now we're reviving them on the streets. Um, or they're getting revived before we even get there. Sometimes they're not uh, with the potency. But I think that's really the big thing is how we can be part of the solution and acknowledge that part of the team. And I, again, I talked about earlier what we talked about is where we are unique in the sense, and everybody says, oh, yeah, but the paramedics are different. Well, we are, because um, we are the first responder, and the access point through our 911 emergency medical dispatch, they're the first people to give instructions over the phone, medical instructions. And that's often forgotten. That's the first access point people have in their emergency. They call, they're delivering a baby, which is usually a good scenario, but, you know, somebody's having a stroke. We see all the commercial. That's when you access, and they need to know that the system will be there in their time of need. And we haven't done a great job of that. We're doing better. But that just amplifies what we're talking about, the seniors that don't have the care, the, the emergency department. Or when a small hospital like Hope needs to transfer a patient to Royal Columbian. If they can't get the care or a level of ambulance care, a critical team to bring a serious patient in, then we're taking a doctor out of one of those communities or a nurse or a uh, health science professional, that they need to be working in the emergency department. So we need to train our paramedics properly so that they don't, we can do the transport, which we do a very good job of, but we don't have the resources and the training. And that's what's been lacked is we, we don't have enough critical care paramedics to, we don't have enough advanced care paramedics, we don't have enough primary care paramedics, and, we, and our EMRs are the entry level, and we've decreased that level of scope in the province, and not to diminish that care, but we need to provide that. And we need to utilize our current paramedics in the system to train them up to those levels so we can meet the demands and that. And so there are solutions here. Our community paramedic program, in many communities, rural and remote, um, what that means, that there, there's support in the community that works with that primary health care model. In many communities, primarily in rural and remote, they are the only health care in town. Or you take a place like Belmont, where they're when you have a doctor and hopefully a nurse in the clinic there, the paramedics are in there helping those, those, those health care. We work as a team. We work with our first responder partner. So that program has not been expanded into metro and urban. So there's about 30% of our calls, give or take, that really mental health addictions, um, 
seniors that don't necessarily need to be in the back of an ambulance or an emergency department, but that's the only thing they have. So we need alternate pathways to referrals, and that's where this community paramedic program or that primary health care model can get. It's not about just adding more ambulances and more paramedics or more doctors. We need to get the people the right kind of care so they're not tying up the system. So talking about that community par paramedic program, which was, first of all, conceived under your government, uh, Terry, implemented in the under the current government, you look at these small communities, and those community paramedics actually play a very vital role. They're, not only are they a first responder, they're almost an ongoing healthcare um, observer of a, of a community using remote technology uh, supplied by TELUS, I believe, uh, to be able to monitor how patients are doing on a daily basis when that patient starts to experience problems, rather than uh, rushing out there with sirens blaring through the middle of the night to get them to an emergency room, they've already intervened. So in a way, they're playing a preventative role. Why can't we bring that model to urban environments? We can, and there's a general, and I think the one thing about it is it's not to replace your GP, your pharmacist, your nurse practitioners, or your community health supports. It's to supplement that system. So that's, and you're, you're bang on. And there has been a move to move, and that is a solution with our low acuity, and it's about keeping people out of ambulances and freed up those ambulances for those high acuity calls. But unfortunately, the system right now is a default system, just like going to the emergency department because you don't have a GP. Call an ambulance because we think we can get in the emergency department quicker. We wait just, it's about your sickness, your acuity. Um, you know, you, we don't get some magical way past the queue. <laughs> well, those wait lines at, at Emerge are long. Like, uh, we have record long uh, wait times at emergency departments here in British Columbia. Uh, one thing I want to say is that <clears throat> we, uh, we actually, I, I, it was presented to our department just this past week uh, during our ground rounds that now the BCHS has started to move that type of uh, service delivery to urban sites. It takes a lot of training, a lot of infrastructure, but that's an amazing move to provide this type of care in urban settings. Because as you said, the traditional way of thinking, you call 911, they bring you from home to hospital, is not the answer to a good chunk of the healthcare issues. The other thing that um, I actually have seen that is happening to build some efficiency in the system and improve the care is to upscale certain healthcare providers. So be it uh, licensed uh, practical nurses, LPNs, or care aides, or other newer sort of roles in hospital that now we can use them to support the nurses or RNs who are in the system. And I think these are good moves that we have started seeing. And uh, obviously it requires a lot of inv investment continuous investment because it can be like a touch and go because we have to there is there's a gap and to build this resiliency this slack in the system we need to do this in larger scale probably for the whole province rather than just certain hospitals that are the sort of like the hot spots and then uh, this way we can actually decrease the number of patient transfers we can actually do better quality transfers or we can provide the care where the patients are. So can I, I, yeah. can can I just, just say something? <laughs> a, a little microscopic example of not optimizing the system. 
This government created the Health Career Access Program to train healthcare aides. It was a, it's a great program. It, it really is going to help out. But when you are a student doing your practicum in that program, you're not allowed to help feed a resident of long-term care. Even though a volunteer can, but you are on your practicum having had all that training and you're not allowed to. This is the, the, the weird incentives and, and standards that we think are helping the system when they're actually a barrier to optimizing the system, like community paramedics. We've got to optimize, use people to their highest and best level of training uh, to take advantage of all the great people that are actually working in healthcare today. Brian. But I, I do think we need to just re-emphasize we are 69th in the world in doctors per population and yet spend more on healthcare than any country except the United States. There's something wrong with that statistic. There's something wrong with the fact that there are 3,500 young Canadians f who want to be doctors who are in foreign medical schools because of the lack of capacity in Canada. There's something wrong with the fact that we have put up major barriers to well-qualified um, immigrant doctors being able to get a license to practice. So there is a block in the system that needs to be fixed. And, and yes, there's a, there are all these other problems, but when you're 69th in the world in doctors per population, why are we surprised that it's hard to see a family doctor? Well, is it not ridiculous also that we have Canadians that go to be educated to become doctors in for other countries, and then they have to go through an enormous program, program to come back here. Are you finding the same thing? <laughs> yeah, we're finding that uh, with the nurses. I mean, the fact that we have wait lists in universities for nursing school, I just cannot even fathom why we have that because we have a nursing shortage. They should be opening up those seats. Anybody that's on a wait list should be provided the opportunity to go into those classes have the educators, they need to fund the educators as well, and we should be able to produce those nurses. Then we have our internationally educated nurses, and Terry spoke to that, uh, BCNU, we created an internationally educated nurses working group with the college, including the Ministry of Health, the Nursing Policy Secretariat, a whole bunch of agencies, to see how we can work to shorten the credentialing and licensing process. Right now it's uh, shipped out to a third party in, I believe it's Pittsburgh, that uh, there is, yes, <laughs> that look that you just gave me, yes. <laughs> so there is only one agency in Canada out of Winnipeg that sends it out to a third party in the US that does all the credentialing for all of North America. So anybody coming to North America wanting to be a registered nurse goes through this one place in Pittsburgh, I believe it is, and that's where all your uh, education files go to, and then you tell them where it is that you want to seek your license. You can give a couple different provinces, and then it comes back to the college once that has been done, and then the college will look to see where what credentials you may need, upgrading, etc. And this is, sorry, just want to say, this is costing a lot of money for those internationally educated nurses. We have 1,500, according to Adrian Dix, that are here in BC, ready, willing, and able to work 
yet we're still waiting for them to go through this process. Wow. So, Brian, you were president of BCMA and CMA. No, CMA. Oh, just CMA. Yeah. Oh, sorry, gave you extra billing. But you've, you've run into these problems. What, what are our roadblocks? Well, the, road, the roadblock is, um, is a disincentive. I mean, it goes back to the 90s where, where Vaughan started off, that there's still that thing out there that if you've got too many doctors and nurses and too many hospital beds, that you'll <coughs> use up the money. And, and, and you know, the courts have, have stated categorically, these are policy decisions made by the governments in Canada to limit spending on healthcare. They've, they've, they've got a fixed budget, and they've decided to ration beyond that budget. And, um, and uh, there's no reason why, why we shouldn't be expanding nursing and medical schools and, and, uh, and training for paramedics and training for every, all ne needed workers, because as everyone has said on this panel, we're getting older, and we're, um, you know, the, the doctors and, and the nurses are getting older. I, I, when I was CMA president, I used to say, you know, the problem with our young doctors is most of them are in their 50s. And, 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 and um, that hasn't changed. Vaughan, you're listening to this panel from Victoria, your office there in, in the Legend Victoria. What question would you like to pose to our panelists at this point? Well, um, I personally, was shocked by uh, what the Court of Appeal said this year in upholding uh, the Medicare Protection Act here in British Columbia. Uh, I wasn't surprised that they upheld it uh, because I figured they would. What I was surprised by was the language they used and the exceptional candor that those judges used. They said people are going to suffer and die. They said that people are going to suffer and die. That's what people do on waiting lists. We treat waiting lists like it's a, a system of counting and, and accounting, and it's like the other lists of numbers in the provincial budget. Uh, no, and, and it's people suffering and dying. And I guess what I would ask the panel is, why do they think that Canadians Put up with that. <laughs> well, they say they say you can identify a Canadian in North Dakota at three o'clock in the morning because they're waiting at a traffic light for the little white man to to show before they cross the <laughs> cross the. They're they're very um, accepting of of government in a way that a lot of other people aren't. I find, and um, I don't think. They, it, as, as I think um, some of the panelists have said, I don't think the next, you know, the generation behind us, the, the, 30, the 20 to 5, 25, 25, 30 year olds and 40 year olds, they're not going to accept that. There's, there's going, and, and one of the things the BC Court of Appeal said is they basically came out and said, either politicians are going to have to change this or the whole system is going to implode. And, um, and um, that's, um, I think those are the choices if the courts don't change it. Ali, in response to Vaughn's question, why do you think we put up with this? <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I well, I don't I don't see it this way. I don't see it as it could be because of my background. I probably have to say uh, a bit about my background. So we talk about internationally graduated physicians. I'm one of them. So I come from a <coughs> different background. I trained outside of Canada. I came to Canada. I usually joke about it half in just that I got fully recycled here. So I did a master's degree and two residencies to be able to practice as a physician again in Canada. And my way of looking at healthcare is probably a little bit different. So I see what we have in healthcare here with all of its deficiencies still as a privilege. And again, it could be unique between the people in this room or maybe the audience outside of this room. Uh, and the other thing about the way I look at it is that there is room to improve the system. Uh, we keep hearing that the system is broken. I, and I think a system that is broken is a system that can't be saved. I think this system has deficiencies, significant ones, but also I don't think we've looked at all the avenues to improve the efficiencies. We haven't looked at uh, other industries that they can actually uh, come across to our side in healthcare and help us improve the efficiencies. So putting up with it, I hope as someone who is in, in the generation behind you, Brian, uh, we're not putting up with it. We are still hopeful and we think we can improve the system knowing that it takes a lot of investment, it takes a lot of hard work, like a lot of countries who came out, out of post-war, they, they put in 11, 12, 18 hour days to build the system. We might be the generation who has to do that. We might have to make sacrifice to improve the system. And I hope I can be part of that. And, and who knows, in 20 years I, sit, I can sit somewhere like here and say, see, we did it. But I, I acknowledge the fact that my fellow Canadians are suffering in wait lists. And every single day, myself, in my different roles as a physician and as partially as an administrator, I go to work to make it better for everyone. And I can guarantee that every single person that shows up to work, from the people who clean rooms, from the volunteers, from the administrators, managers, nurses, everyone, they show up, they show up to do their best. And, and interestingly, we are the people who are, like when you walk into a hospital, we are the ones you see. So sometimes when the waiting list is long, you're like, okay, it's your fault. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. But reality is that we're the ones that we show up and we keep showing up and we believe that the system with all its deficiencies can be fixed. It, it takes a lot of help, support, and working together, working together and working together. Well, everybody on this panel is an example of extraordinary uh, professionalism, a commitment to your uh, role in healthcare. Um, and I think this is why you stay on the job day after day, providing services for one another. But do you not find, uh, Amon, that, you know, to Amon's point, are we, accepting of, well, good is good enough. So I, I was thinking of this answer as everyone I was answering here and, uh, you know, it's ingrained in us. We're Canadian. Thank you. Sorry. We, we say it all the time. It's just been put into our heads and we don't think 
you know, that we deserve better or that we should ask for better. And, um, you know, in nursing and in healthcare, we always ask at the front line, how come, you know, people don't consider it 24-7? We are a 24-7 business, but it doesn't operate like that. Things don't uh, happen on the weekends. They don't happen in the evenings. They don't happen during the night. It falls on the nurse a lot of the times that, you know, treatments that are given during the daytime. In the evening, there's a plan for the nurse to do this. On the weekends, you know, you don't have all the physios and everyone in there, the occupational health therapists, all the different allied support services that work Monday to Friday. We need them 24-7 in the hospitals to be providing that care because that will be what will help get those patients going and moving on in their course of treatment. And so then if we can do that, we can uh, improve health care and uh, get those long-term care patients to where they need to go so that we can clear up those beds. I just want to point out that uh, in terms of the paramedics, you know, they come to the hospital, they have, you know, taken somebody from a tragic accident and, you know, they're bringing them to the hospital, there's no bed available for them and they're having to wait hours. There was a point where recently we did have um, ERAs in our emergency who, because they were having 10 to 12 hour waits in the uh, hallway to offload a patient and the nurse couldn't take them because they already had so many, they were being offloaded to other paramedics that stayed with those patients in the hallway until the triage nurse was able to take them and provide them with another alternate spot to go to. That worked for us and it was a great system. I hear it's not working everywhere, that they're not using it anymore, but what a system that we had. It's thinking outside of the box, how can we make it easier? So at that time, it was very challenging for the paramedics because they were having to wait in hallways for so long. That was remedied. So we need to keep on coming up with better solutions. Troy, to Vaughn's question. Yeah, so uh, I actually thought about this, and uh, you know, uh, Ali, you said it very well, and, and uh, I think one of the key things here for me is paramedics are, and dispatchers are different. And when you say things like, so you ask, you know, what are, what are we doing? I think, why are we Canadian? Why do we accept? I don't think we're accepting it. I think in a lot of situations, until you have an emergency and ever have to call an ambulance or see a doctor or a nurse, you don't know. And we just go along and why we accept it. I speak to paramedics and I think I speak to the other first responders, public safety and healthcare professionals. We, what drives us, we're a different breed. We do this because we try to help people. We're trying to do the best we can to help people. And that's what keeps driving, and I think that's what you said. That's what drives that hope for us. If I didn't believe we could, I believe we have the best ambulance system, structure in the world. We have a provincial ambulance service that's not governed by boundaries, it's not funded to the way it should be, it's not supported, we're not trained to the level. There's a bunch of issues with it, but we truly have a good model. 
it, 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 it not structured right. And what drive, what we comp, we're our own worst enemy because we've been compensating. We just keep making it all work every day. And that's part of the, our sword and our shield because that's the beauty of why we do this. But it's become evident when you talk about that call where they're waiting in the emergency department, they have a patient on their stretcher, the emergency department is full and they know there's calls holding that they can't get to. The psychological injury that that has on people when they can't get to a call or do what they're trained and need and believe in doing. It's system problems, operational stressors that are impacting all of us. It's not that bad call, that bad patient. This is about system things that should not be causing operational and psychological stressors. So I think what it's our own, we're our own worst enemies because we've been compensating for a system for so long and I do it because I believe we can fix this. I don't think we should just throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think we are privileged. There is, like, like, like Brian said, there's some real problems with our system and are we sending the money to that? It doesn't mean we need to, need to throw a whole bunch more money at it. We need to use those resources properly. We need to get people that don't need to be in the emergency department the right care and the right pathway so that they're not tying up an ambulance or the emergency department. Or, and, and it starts with having a, a physician in your community and that primary health team. We want to be part of that. We are part of that system. So I say I have hope. That's why I'm still doing this at this point in my career. I really believe in the model we have and that it's, it needs some significant attention, and it has had a lot of attention. But, we, but we're a little different than doctors and nurses. We have the same challenges with licenses and bureaucracy and not enough seats, but we're, we have been trying to hire internationally. We've been trying, other jurisdictions are paying paramedics. On, Toronto is paying paramedics way more than they can, so they're not gonna come here. This policy that they're all lined up at the Alberta border wanting to come here or flying from England, we're getting a few because it's a beautiful province. But we have to use our, our staff. So we ha currently have, uh, we've went for, in the last couple years from 30% of our 4,500 members to about 52% are now full-time. That's increasing from on-call precarious workers in volunteer part-time jobs. We went to a, almost just over 50% of our our ranks are full-time, and that's proving very effective. The problem is we need to utilize our staff that we currently have that have chosen not to work because of that model of pay scheme. So they're just saying, I don't want, we got about 800 people that are on our books that just aren't working. They're working minimum because they're working in the mine, they're working wherever because they don't, they won't work for that model. So we need to continue that trajectory of full-time and use our current staff, like you're talking about, train up our EMRs to PCPs. We need to use our, whether that's over a staggered training model, unless we use our current staff and increase their scope of training, we're not going to hire this big lineup at the border to solve our staffing problem. Terry. <laughs> well, I think Vaughn's question is the question. And Vaughn knows that in every provincial election, every federal election, healthcare is always one of the top three or four issues, but it's never, ever the ballot question. And we built a myth in Canada over the last 50 to 60 years, two myths. One, that we were the best in hockey, and that was dispelled 50 years ago in Summit Series 72. And guess what? We changed the way we train hockey players. 
I mean, no longer are they sitting in between periods smoking a cigarette in the, in the dressing room, right? I mean, the, the difference was startling, and it men's woke us all there. up. Well, men's league, maybe. <laughs> but it, it woke us all up, and we changed the way we trained hockey players. I think we're finally coming to the same uh, moment when we realize the myth of the exceptional Canadian healthcare system has to be confronted because we always compare ourselves to the United States, which is the absolute worst comparator. <laughs> As Brian said, they spend the most money per person. They have the worst outcomes on average, although if you have lots of money, you can get great outcomes. But we don't look at Australia, at the UK, at Germany, New Zealand. Let's take a look at other systems that function better than ours, and let's finally have an adult Canadian discussion and get rid of this idea that it's a political third rail to talk about it. Because I've asked both conservative and liberal uh, health, health ministers when I was serving that role here, if the Canada Health Act or the way we deliver health care was ever going to be reconsidered, and the absolute answer was no. Because politically, we have not confronted it, and it's, we're going to have to. And as I said, as baby boomers can't get the care they need, the numbers will dictate, politicians will have to change the conversation. That means all of us, the self-interests in the healthcare system, will have to come together and agree how we can improve it for Canadians. Not for us, but for Canadians. When we announced this panel, uh, there were a number of other organizations that called in and said, can we be on the panel? But as you can see, there's not enough room. There wouldn't be enough time. But the Health Sciences Association uh, said, can we provide a video clip? So they came down to our studio and recorded this clip. Amy, can you play that clip, please? I'm Kane Say, president of the Health Sciences Association, the union representing over 20,000 specialized health professionals in BC. Our members work in over 70 different professions. They're pharmacists, social workers, respiratory therapists, lab technologists, physiotherapists, MRI technologists, and so many others. These professionals do the daily work to diagnose everything from cancer to COVID and provide essential treatment and rehabilitation from serious illness and injuries. They are critical members of the healthcare team, but they're overworked and burnt out. And many of them are thinking of quitting or moving to Alberta, where they would be paid 20% more right away. Respiratory therapists, the folks who've been keeping critically ill patients alive throughout this pandemic, are leaving in droves. One lower mainland hospital respiratory therapy department has seen 24 people leave the job in the last two years. It's a department of 80. That's a more than 25% loss. We'd like to hear from the panel what needs to be done to keep these essential professionals here in BC. So it's a question to all of you uh, that I'd like you to consider, uh, but also uh, we're going to run out of time. We're going to go beyond our, our time because we're passionately engaged in this topic. But please, uh, if you can respond to his question, but then also give us your thoughts about what is something that you think is a move that can push us forward to try and bring this collective of service providers, healthcare professionals together to work with government to find the solutions that we need? Well, I, th I think, it, you know, the, he basically gave us the answer and that is we're under, in BC, we're underpaying those, 
those groups. Um, you know, one of the questions we, we might wonder is how come we're the highest, Canada is the highest spender of countries with universal health care, and yet is performing so badly. And there is one group of um, health in the health field that are expanding, and that is um, health, the healthcare bureaucracy. So Canada has 11 health bureaucrats in their public system for every one that Germany has. We have 14 ministries of health, each with deputy ministers and associate deputy ministers. And Britain, with almost double the population, has one. So there is a lot of waste, and you know, I used to say, I used to ask the question, why, why does the um, Vancouver Hospital need 14 vice presidents when the United States can get by with one? Um, you know, these are valid questions, and um, and there's no question in my mind as a government-run, purely government-run system, and a monopoly, that we find that it gr grows itself. Bureaucracies tend to expand. And so I think a lot of money, the reason it's expensive is a lot of money is not going to the end stage workers in the system. And um, so that's, the, that's one of the solutions. You know, I was once asked, and I, I won't say by whom, if I would consider being Minister of Health. <coughs> and I said, well, you, are you sure you would? Uh, what, 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 well, I, I said, I don't think you'd like the first thing I'd I would do, and the person who asked me said, well, what would you do? I said, well, the first thing I'd do is abolish the Ministry of Health and have the Ministry of Finance send all the money directly to the hospitals, <laughs> saving a couple of billion dollars right there. That would be after you take a pay cut, by the way. <laughs> Troy, yeah. in, in response to his question, but also as a a uh, concluding remark from you. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. We're, we're not paying the healthcare professionals. And health science, you know, often uh, professionals often are, uh, they're, like we've talked about, they're part of the system and a vital part of the system. And we're not, and if they're not competitive, they're going to have recruitment and retention issues, just like I explained, just like our other professions are. And, and I, I think that's really the, the fundamental issue there. Um, but I think really the ultimate part of this is, uh, you know, you mentioned the bureaucracy. And I think about it, I, I dummy this down, and I'm just, I'm just a worker. Uh, we ambulance services, we need two people in an ambulance to treat and transport people in their time of emergency. We need a 911 medical dispatcher to answer the call when somebody has an emergency, provide a medical instruction until the ambulance gets there, and send the first responders. So it's not a complicated business in, in that sense. There's a you know, scope of practice and clinically, and all these things are, and you know, support stuff and all that sort of stuff. But I don't know what our ratio is, but we, went, we were moved into the provincial health services uh, a number of years ago from a standalone entity that had very minimal administrative oversight. We have, you know, I'm not talking about clinical supervision or paramedics on the street that when we're dealing with mass casualty incidents, that sort of stuff, that we need that operational supervision. That's part of the role. But when we're talking about a top-heavy bureaucratic system that over shared services model that they call it that oversees the ambulance service, 
we're a pretty standalone entity that uh, doesn't fit in the healthcare model and it hasn't worked since we were moved into there. When we were commissioned under the Ministry of Health, it worked very well. They had direct control over ambulance services. So when you talk about that top-end bureaucratic administrative, um, we need to really look at what services are they providing for us and is that directly related to me and my time of need for an, an ambulance or answering a 911 emergency medical call. So I think that uh, you're very right. There is a lot of bureaucratic, and we see that every day in the ambulance service, being part of a, a large health authority that really is not meeting our needs. That's the reason we're not posting our positions. That's the reason we're having payroll issues. We can't even get paramedics paid properly. All these issues that are just crazy when it's really simple. The business we do is treating and transport people to hospital in their time of need with the highest level of care. That's what we want to do, and that's how simple it should be. Come on. Thank you. I would have to say pay them what they're worth. If 20% wage hike just by going across the border to Alberta, how are we going to retain them? We need retention strategies, and uh, it clearly shows that we're not paying them what they're worth, because let me tell you, all our allied healthcare workers, all our paramedics, doctors, nurses, they all deserve to be compensated for what they have gone through throughout the pandemic, through the opioid crisis, working short, and it's not just nurses, it's everybody has gone through this and uh, we need to retain them because if we lose them to another province, um, it's gonna take us a very long time to be able to put anybody through schooling to get them. I mean, it takes four years for a nurse right now. Hopefully we can change that to make it two years, but at the end of the day, we don't have enough people that are here in the system and we need to retain what we have and um, you know what, we have a campaign and I'm gonna put in a little plug here uh, for BC nurses. We have a helpbcnurses.ca microsite where you can go and send a message to your MLA to improve the healthcare system. Allie, you are uh, hopeful. <laughs> what are your thoughts here? Yes, I'm, I'm hopeful. Uh, I must say something, so you've heard this before. Uh, it's we should not let a crisis to go to waste and this this crisis actually for me personally and a lot of my colleagues uh, was great because it actually opened our eyes to the capacity of the system one and also the the different departments and the people that it takes to run the system and a lot of the people that I used to think as allied health workers, I call them essential. I call them peers right now because uh, I always respected and knew how important it is for the environmental services to clean my department. But the day that I had to see the room clean between patients, COVID patients, and I couldn't see the next patient until the room was clean, I figured out the val real value of Cindy and Debbie in my department. Right, so, and that's the same for all of the essential workers in the healthcare system. And again, it's not a cliche. Human resource is the most expensive and the most important part of healthcare systems. I think it's definitely it's easier and cheaper to build facilities rather than train skilled people and also experienced people. So, 
I think most important thing right now is to take care of people who take care of people. If we can do that right now, if we can actually have a very aggressive retention strategy, so we're not losing people who are already in the system, who are knowledgeable, they can actually mentor new uh, workforce, because that's, that's, a, that's a problem, and we've heard this. We've had a lot of experienced healthcare providers in different sectors leave the profession, and now there's a void of people who can actually train and teach. So if we can keep people a bit longer, whatever it may take, an increase in salary is definitely great, but when you learn about bring joy back to work, it's not always about your, your paycheck. And that's something that I'm interested in. And when you learn about leadership, you learn more about how else can you actually bring joy back to workplace. And I think that's, that is part of my message of hope. Again, I'm, I guess I'm inherent, <laughs> inherently optimistic, but I, I have seen that when we sit together at the table, we can be creative, we can help each other, we can come up with, with plans. And, and again, paramedics working in emergency department was a beautiful example. When, when it was working for a brief period a few years ago, it was a night, night and day difference we were making in the, in the life of the patients. Because at the end of the day, all of us, our business is well-being of the public, eventually. Like when we see a patient who, who we, don't, we don't call patients clients, but truly they are clients of the healthcare system. When we see a patient happy with the care they have received, when we see them uh, content with the care and leave the department or get admitted and get the care they, they felt they deserved, that brings satisfaction. I think that brings joy to, to us. Maybe, maybe I make the same amount if I have good outcomes or bad outcomes, but the day I go home and I feel that I made a difference is definitely a better day. That's the day that I, have, I had joy in my work. Enjoyed, I enjoyed my work. Well said. Yeah, well said. Terry, speaking yeah. from the perspective of BC care providers. Yeah, yeah. well, uh, Ali said it. Uh, it's, it's keeping those people uh, engaged and wanting to come to work every day. During the COVID pandemic, when long-term care homes were uh, the most uh, hard hit, uh, people were afraid to come to work. Uh, and many of them came to work, uh, you know, taking the risk of, of being ill and taking that, that virus home to their families because they, they had a duty of care. Uh, and, you know, after two years of Anyone still working in long-term care does it because they love the people for whom they care. And so they should be rewarded, but they have to want to be in that environment. So I'm so happy to hear Ali say that. They need to be supported. It's not necessarily about more money for each person. It's about having a full team so you don't feel burned out, so you're, you don't miss your break. And so we need more care aides, we need more nurses to provide more hours of care for the highly complex patients uh, getting more and more complex with every year in long-term care, more home care to keep people healthy at home. You cannot compete next to a petro economy next door, believe me, because when the price of oil is high, every problem gets solved in Alberta with a check. And so we can't just match Alberta in, in remuneration. We have to create environments where people feel supported, 
they feel wanted, and they're not going home burnt out and in tears. So Amy, I'd like to ask you to play one more clip from uh, Kevin Wing, um, clip number six, uh, which we've called Sinking Boat. And then Vaughn, I'm gonna come to you for your closing remarks. If you're just doing the same thing you did last year when you knew last year wasn't good enough because you left 5% of the people behind, then again, like what's, what's the deal with that, right? And that's what we need. And those are the kind of conversations that have to happen. If you're bailing a boat that's sinking and, and you're not bailing fast enough, you're still sinking. <laughs> Follow that, Vaughn. Very, very good comment. I'm, I've been, I'm gonna finish by going back to this people suffering and dying on waiting lists. So. Uh, you're on a waiting list uh, because, as everybody knows, we ration access to health care here. We don't open the ERs for the most part 24-hour-7. Uh, uh, we don't staff them. We, in some cases, don't have the staff, but in many cases, we don't budget for that. But I've, I've covered provincial budgets all my working life, and we don't really have a budget for fighting forest fires. There's a nominal amount in the provincial budget, but we spend what it takes to put the fires out. And the finance ministry rustles off where they, the way they do and they find the money to pay for it. And we don't really have a budget to deal with floods like those horrific floods we had last year. Uh, we just spend what it takes. So I'm thinking of a piece of legislation to deal with the waiting list problem. And what it would do is it would, first of all, establish panels of medical practitioners, professionals who know the field well, not politicians, who would define a reasonable period for waiting for um, knee surgery, for example, or a hip replacement. Um, and the tests that are needed and uh, dealing with the more serious conditions. And then it would say, that by the determination of someone like the Auditor General, so again, independent, when those thresholds have been exceeded on a regular basis by, say, 20%, uh, everyone waiting for knee surgery is waiting a hell of a lot longer than they should and in pain, then what it would say is that the government has got to take the money out of contingencies. There's a lot of money in contingencies, a billion dollars this year, They've already put aside $2 billion for next year, so they have the money. Uh, the government would have to take the money out of contingencies and, and activate the excess unused capacity in the system here in British Columbia, if it's available, or hire it out to Alberta or Washington State if it's available. Pay all the bills. This isn't going private. This is the government being accountable for managing the waiting lists at a reasonable level where people aren't dying and where they aren't suffering unreasonable. So that's my little solution. I have no idea if it would work and I can't imagine any politician embracing it, uh, but that's why I get to talk and write columns in the Vancouver Sun. I'm not accountable for anything else. Thank you for listening. Consider the source. <laughs> This has been a fantastic discussion. I know that we have a whole bunch of people who were sending in questions on Slido and I never got to any of them. To all of you who did send in uh, questions, I apologize. Um, but this was such a lively discussion and I don't know whether or not we've moved the needle just a little bit, but if we're 
ramping up interest in the topic and we can get people to get behind this discussion and put pressure on to find those solutions in an integrated way, well then I think that we can be hopeful, as Ali has said, that maybe we can find solutions. Here's hoping. So it's been a wonderful evening. Um, we are going to be posting the video back on the Vancouver Sun Online from th this evening. And just before we go, I want to thank our sponsors once again, which are the Port of Vancouver, Stem Cell Technologies, BD Developments, Polygon, Landlord BC, and Investment News Network. And one last thing, you put in a plug, I'm going to put in a little plug for our next event next month where we're going to take on the issue of crime. Do you feel safe? So look forward, uh, look forward to receiving some information about our next event, uh, third Tuesday in October. Thank you very much for being here tonight. And thank you for joining us online.